All right, well, let's uh, pray one more time together. Ask the Lord to bless His Word and to bless our time together in His Word. Okay, let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we we come with a great expectation now, knowing that this is Your Word, knowing that, Lord, as Your Word is proclaimed and preached, that this is Your time, Lord, to speak into our church's life to speak into our hearts. And we ask and we pray and we beseech your throne to dispense now your grace, to give us your spirit in great measure. Father, to pour upon us all of the riches of the grace and the unfathomable riches of Christ, that we would esteem those riches as greater wealth than anything found in Egypt. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause our gaze uh, to be firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and you would keep our hearts firmly rooted and grounded in Him. Father, we ask that You would allow our affections now to rise to Thee, O Lord. And that You would capture our hearts. Take our hearts off of the things that are not worthy. The broken cisterns that are all around us that simply cannot and will not satisfy us. And help us, Lord, to set our hearts upon that which is truly satisfying, to set our heart on the eternal, the invisible, the infinite. Lord, help us to commune with You, knowing that in You is life. We pray Your help now. We pray Your guidance. We pray for Your blessing. We pray for Your protection. Help me, give me a mouth to speak your word, to rightly divide it. And by the power of your spirit, may you apply these rich things to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. What a precious, precious section of Scripture indeed. Kind of want to recall your attention back to verse 13. We're going to go looking at verses 14 and 15 today, really. But to go back to what sort of set the pace for all of it, and that is that by faith, the men and women of old saw themselves as strangers and as aliens in this earth, in this world. Uh, they took upon, therefore, an altered identity. It was because of their union with Christ, because of their union with God, that they saw themselves as strangers and exiles. And you remember, I made a big deal out of those two words. Strangers and exiles, the one speaking about the fact that we do not belong here. And strangers and exiles emphasizing the idea we are not staying here either. So that what is the altered identity of the believer? It is this, 
that as a stranger and as an exile in this world, you are a person who is just passing through. You are you neither belong here and you are not staying here. So if that's the truth, what should be our ambition? Knowing that much of the Bible is written, brothers and sisters, to literally pry the world from us. How gracious it is of God to do that, to take those things away from us that will not satisfy us, will not fill us, will not grant us everlasting contentment, but will always disappoint us, always fail us, will always be temporal, will always be temporary, will always be fleeting and fading away. Don't you feel it? You can't hold on to anything, can you? can't hold on to your years. You can't hold on to your health. You can't hold on to your family. You can't hold on to your children. They grow up, they leave. You can't hold on to the people that you love and you cannot hold on to this life because eventually it will be all stripped away. And God graciously is preparing us by altering our identity as strangers and exiles and replacing our ambition with an altered ambition. And what is that ambition? That ambition is an eternal ambition. The Bible everywhere has things to say about being eternally minded. There is no key to the Christian life, but let me give you one right now. Be eternally minded. Have an eternal perspective. Being eternally minded, heavenly minded, that is such a crucial, crucial aid in your sanctification and your progress in this life. And that's what I want to seek to prove to us today from this text is, oh, just the the wonder, the the gain, the, the advantage, the benefit, the privilege of being eternally minded. One of the worst adages, one of the worst things that could have ever been said ever is the old saying that says that you are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That is a lie directly and derived straight out of the pit. If we were to be more heavenly minded, we would finally be of some earthly good. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And so, therefore... Begin with understanding that as a result of our altered identity, you remember what we were talking about? What is it going to take to be in the hall of faith? Hebrews 11 has been called the hall of faith. And so I affectionately uh, use that title and say, what is it going to take? We know what it takes athletes to get into the hall of fame. But what does it take for you to get into the hall of faith? So second point for you to get into the hall of fame or into the hall of faith. I don't know if you're going to any of you will end up in the hall of fame anywhere. But in God's hall of faith, as it were, is that you will have an eternal ambition, an eternal ambition. Turn with me in Hebrews to chapter 13. And God makes it very clear and Hebrews makes it very clear that one of the reasons why we should be of of an eternal mind, eternal perspective to get a grip, get, get our, get our heads around this and to firmly grasp this. This has to really firmly be grasped is God is reminding us that we have no lasting city here. You see that? 
Hebrews 13, beginning verse 13. So let us go out to him outside of the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we do not have a lasting city. But we are seeking a city which is to come. And uh, this should be easy for me, for me to illustrate the fact that we live here in North Dallas where you can't drive down the street without seeing a new crane popping up somewhere, right? There's buildings popping up everywhere around here. There's building going on. I told you, down the street, what they're building is the what's known as the, the $5 billion mile, which is a patch of real estate that the city of Dallas is going to be pumping literally billions of dollars into. A big swath of it, by the way, is actually owned by a Muslim from Dubai. But anyway, that's a different topic for another day. But they're pumping and funneling all this money into Dallas for one simple reason, to get people to feel at home here, to make people move here, to make people feel like they belong here, to give people a sense of, of privilege and pride. But whatever money is spent here will ultimately fade away. Why? Because we have no lasting city here. It will ultimately be stripped away from you. And God has a way of reminding you of that all the time. So it begins by confessing what they confessed, not only that they were strangers and exiles, but remind yourself that here in this place, you have no lasting city. The Bible aims to make us live eschatologically with a vision of the eschaton firmly set in front of us. We are to live with one foot here and one foot in eternity at all times. And therefore... We should be willing, even as it says there in chapter 13, verse 13, we should be willing to bear the reproach, to go outside of the camp with Christ. What what that means is that's the place of suffering outside of the gate. That's the place of cross-bearing. That's the place of self-denial. That's the place of death and reproach and persecution. And by the way, that is exactly where the people of Hebrews that this letter was written to, that is exactly where this was, when it was written to them. Uh, Look at that with me just quickly to bring us up sharp on this. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 32. This is no theoretical theology for these people. This is not just theory. This is not just abstract philosophy. This is concrete truth. This is everyday experience for these believers. Verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. There is a massive advantage to being under persecution, I believe. Let me just qualify that. We should never pray for persecution. We should never desire persecution. We should never ask God to send persecution our way. God forbid we should be praying against persecution. We should be praying that God would deliver us from persecution. But there is an advantage to persecution. And that is, is that it makes everything a bit more real. It shows you the vanity of the world a lot quicker 
It shows you the, it shows you the, uh, the benefit of your heavenly hope, more fool. And it should cause us, therefore, to be able to take our eyes off of the temporal and onto the eternal. Our whole life, listen, our entire life should be a striving to be more eternally minded, a comprehensive view, an all-encompassing vision of our lives from a distinctly eternal perspective. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 so I can show you this day to day. Day to day. Something we all share. We, we may not be all under persecution. Some of you are. Some of you have been persecuted for the faith. You don't need to live in communist China to be persecuted. There are members of our church right now, depending on what kind of family you live in, that are under persecution. But all of life should be with this all-encompassing vision to be eternally minded. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 4. You know this text. Verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. What's our coping mechanism found? Is it found in antidepressants? Is it found in uh, spending your life with trivial entertainment? Where is it found in substance abuse? Where is it found? Where's your coping mechanism found? Well, here Paul says, but though our outer man is decaying, and that's what I mean, we can all identify with this. If you can't, well, just wait till you hit 40. You will. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison while we look not at the things that are seen. What a play on words. Looking at the things that are seen. But it says, but, but at the, at the things which are not seen. Where are your eyes? Which is to say, where's your, where's your focus? What are you concentrating on in this world? Where's your ambition? Where's, what's your worldview? It says, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, they are eternal. Now this is an amazing, uh, exegetical fact that you need to see, is that this is not the same time, this is not the first time the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians has combined the word weight with beyond comparison. That's actually one Greek word, hyperbole, beyond measure which is a way to combine two words together to simply speak of something that is excessive. Look with me to the first chapter of of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because he's already used these terms in combination. The Greek word for weight or burden, baros. The word for beyond comparison or excessive, hyperbole, baros, hyperbole. He used this already in The first chapter in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were bara, we were burdened. There was a weight, excessive, and then he says, burdened excessively, hyperbole. He says, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. So what happens here? Because... Because, and this is what an eternal mindset does. The Apostle Paul now sees his life in light of eternity and he, he's no longer focusing on the, bro, the bone-crushing weight of his trials, but now he's saying what is weighty, what is true weight is eternity. And that registers as a 
heavier reality with me than any temporal trial that I'm going through. What is beyond? It's not depression. What is beyond? It's not despair. What is beyond is the weight of glory that is being produced behind the scenes. There's a reality behind the reality. Absolutely. There is something going on eternally in our lives, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tribulations, in the midst of our sanctification. God is at work eternally on our behalf. Do you believe it? That a weight of glory is being prepared. What is the great, the weight of glory? The weight of glory is that you will be so enthralled with worship in heaven. You will be so satisfied. You will be glorified. Oh, it is enough, is it not? It is enough that God is going to glorify us. That He is going to make it impossible for us to ever sin again. That is enough. But it's weightier than that. It's not just Trials are over, body aches over, cancer over, disease over, abuse over, dysfunction over, crime over, injustice over, communism, fascism over, radical Islam, terrorism over. It's more than that. It's glory. You know, I've developed a bit of tough skin by going to college and preaching, as you know. And very little gets to me anymore when 20-something-year-old college students hurl every conceivable uh, degrading uh, comment my way. It really doesn't move me much anymore. You know one thing that does move me? I don't show it. But it does move me, does really upset me, is when college students say, what are we going to be doing in heaven? It sounds so boring. That hurts. Because what they're saying is, this exceeding weight of glory is actually nothing. What they're saying is, is that being in heaven with God is actually really last in one's priorities. It's, it's really something that's to be contemptible. It's, it's something that we can disregard. It's something we can overlook. Their eyes are, they're blind. They don't see. How, how do I even respond to that in a way that they're going to understand? Well, you're not going to be bored because, you know, your sanctification is going to be complete. Glorification is going to begin. Eternal ages will begin. And guess what? It's going to be a new city, new Jerusalem. It's going to be a new heavens, a new earth. Not, they don't care. They need to have their identity altered first before they can have their ambitions altered. That's the reality. So, result number one from having an altered identity and a eternal mindset. Number one is that this eternal ambition results in the pursuit of a transcendent joy. That's really true. Look at the text back in Hebrews. If we go back there quickly, it says in verse 14, for those who say these things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. In other words, their ambition was somewhere else. It was beyond the temporal world. And this is remarkable as well because what it shows us is that, biblically speaking, um, what the promised land was 
It was just a picture. It was just a type. It was typological of a greater promised land. So that they knew that even in the possession of Canaan, that Canaan itself was not enough to satisfy them ultimately. That was not their final resting place. It was a type of their heavenly inheritance. It is ultimately typologically, typological of our heavenly home, a new Jerusalem, the city of the living God, as Gerhardus Voss has said, the abode of Israel in Canaan typifies the heavenly perfected state of God's people. What is it that God, what is heaven? Heaven is God's people dwelling in a communion bond with God in a holy realm. And God is seeking for us to have uh, aspirations to be there. That's why the Apostle Paul, right? This is why Paul can utter those otherworldly words when he says, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. The world looks at death as something too inconceivable to even talk about over lunch. Uh, you know, uh, Christians fantasize about death, right? Who are you going to talk to when you get to heaven? You ever play that little game? My wife loves playing that game. <laughs> I tell it's the same person I told you last time, sweetheart, I'm going to talk to I want to talk to Paul. I want to talk to Adam. I want to talk to John. I want to talk to Moses. I want to talk to Jonathan Edwards. I want to talk to Spurgeon. I want to be in that number. Now, what's really interesting here is that they are seeking their own country. Did you get that? Now, if you, depending on your translation, the ESV has translated the world, the, the word country there as homeland. And what they're trying to get at is that it's not just a country. It's it's actually, the Greek word is patride. It, it means fatherland. It comes from the Greek word patris, father. It is their fatherland. It is, it, it, it is the place of their fathers. It is the place of one's natural residence where their family descended from. It's where our family actually is. That's where we belong. We don't belong anywhere here. There's nowhere here. That, it, that, that should ultimately feel like home. There should always be an ache within the believer that feels like this is not home. Five billion dollar mile, it's okay. You know, the river walk. Yeah, the beaches, the mountains. I don't care where you're from. It's not home. And it'll never satisfy you. And the Lord has ways of reminding you about that over and over and over again. But you know what? They didn't just acknowledge heaven is my home. Did you get that? They sought it. They sought after it. And here, the Greek is very clear. They were seeking continuously as the driving force of their life. They were pressing in to the eschaton. They were eschatologically minded. Everything they did, their whole lives were, were, were motivated by this driving force that they knew that God was taking them to a heavenly country, to an unshakable kingdom. I mean, think about it. Maybe it's just the fact that maybe you haven't read enough church history. Read some church history. 
Pick up Philip Chaff. Get Justo Gonzalez. Get Bruce Shelby. Read an introduction to church history so that you can see from a Christian perspective the rising and fallings of empires, the rise and fall of world powers and what God is doing in this world. Rome was not their home. Mesopotamia was not their home. Egypt was not their home. The United States is not your home. And if it gets bad enough here so that you're gonna get a, you're gonna get a passport and get out of here after the election, guess what? Wherever you go, that's not your home either. Nowhere that you go is your home. Uh, Joseph Urban and I were joking about that because Joseph has become actually a really good dog trainer. And he says, I'm going to train a pack of dogs. You know, it gets bad enough in society. He's going to go up to the hills of Mexico and he's going to live with dogs up there, protect a plot of land. And he's just going to, you know, like a doomsday. I'm like, you're like a doomsday prepper. You can't run from your problems, man. I'll let you know if he tries. We can't run. There's nowhere we can go. But God has decreed this for us. Our hope in heaven resides in the fact that our heavenly home is also something that God has decreed. Therefore, it is a settled matter of conviction. Are you convicted about this? Uh, look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, because here, once again, Hebrews Peter speaking with one voice about realized eschatology, about the hope of heaven coming into our daily lives even now. Peter says in First Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our hope is alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By the way, why is it from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? You know why? I'll tell you why. Because the because Jesus Christ resurrecting from the dead, that is not just simply a fact of history that, 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 that Christians tried to argue to show, hey, look, something really miraculous happened in the Bible. Someone rose from the dead. Do you know what the resurrection of Jesus in the Bible means? It is not just an interesting fact of history. It means, according to the Bible, that the, the world to come has already dawned and broken into this world. It means that the end of the ages are here because of Jesus Christ. We have already seen it. It's already been inaugurated. Look at verse 4. We have to obtain, this is what He has prepared for us, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And you are being protected by the power of God. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that by your power I am being kept, I am being protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You hear the eschatological urgency in Peter's voice? Is that the way we think? Is that the way we live? Is that the way we talk about eschatology? There's an eschatological urgency. Why? Because... You know, we have prior knowledge of the second, of the timing of the second coming. Of course not. But because you don't know when it is that God is going to summon you to His presence. You don't know when you're going to have your own personal rapture into the presence of God. You don't know when God is going to usher you in. And that's it. I mean, think of it, folks. Think of it. Oh, it is, it is the, it is the characteristic of the wicked to have no regard for eternal things. It is a character of a wicked person not to see his or herself in the, on the precipice of eternity. 
But the Christian is to live daily in the eye of eternity. Daily in light of eternity. What's the second thing? Well, it's not just that we have a transcendent joy, a pursuit of transcendent joy. But let me tell you this, having an eternal ambition also results in having a transcendent contentment. There is a sweet contentment knowing where you're going. Because look at verse 15. I think that's what's being said here in Hebrews. It says they are seeking their own country. Look at verse 15. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have opportunity to return. But of course, they did not return. They did not go back to Ur. They did not go back to Mesopotamia. The fathers, the patriarchs, settled in the promised land and they understood that that was God's realm for them. That was God's promised land. It was all according to promise. A true eternal ambition is clearly seen brothers and sisters, by the fact that we are content to have our fatherland above. Nobody taught this more explicitly and more succinctly than the Lord Jesus Himself. I will remind you of those precious words that Jesus uttered when He says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. How are you doing with that? How's that going? How are your ambitions with that? Check your motives. Examine your heart. Is your heart set on earthly things? And if they are, recognize that moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. There's nothing. There's nothing as... uh, as, as uh, Elliot says famously that he is a fool, he's not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm forgetting his name right now. Jim Elliot. Thank you. Thank you, my dear wife. Look at verse 20. Well, I'm reading from Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is... There's your heart. What's an interpretation of that text? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is, we're going to be celebrating the Reformation here really soon at our church, right? And, and what is the ultimate hermeneutic of the Reformation? The analogia fide, the analogy of the faith. Scripture interpreting Scripture. And I think 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning of verse 29, is a good exposition of Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Listen to what Paul says. If you don't have an eternal perspective, if you don't have a spiritual mindset, you will not understand these words at all. 1 Corinthians 7.29 says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. As those that rejoice as though they did not rejoice. As those who buy as though they did not possess. Now, if you're a little bit unclear, what what in the world is he saying here? Look at verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. In other words... It is a call to think 
beyond the temporal to the eternal. Understand that your life is not simply to live in the context of family, in the context of marriage. Your world should not be wrapped around your kids. There needs to be a more superior driving force in your life than just marriage and family, just kids, just entertainment, just sports, just career, just money, just possessions. There should be more than that. And I will invoke Johnny Mac to help us out here. I will let him convict us. Okay, I'm going to let another pastor do the work. John MacArthur says this as an interpretation of this verse. Very good. Paul is teaching that marriage should not reduce a Christian's obligation and devotion to the Lord and to his work. The responsibilities of marriage are no excuse for slacking in the Lord's work. That is to invert the priorities. Listen now. Today, it has become increasingly difficult because of close attachment to families to get Christians, including missionaries, to be strongly dedicated to serving the Lord. There must be a balance, a scriptural balance, between fulfilling marriage needs and serving the Lord, the primary primary affections of all Christians, whether married or single, should be Set your mind on the things above, not the things of this earth. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the world is passing away. That's the same word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 7. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. MacArthur says, we must understand the priority of the eternal over the temporal. It's all about priorities. What's the priority in your home? It's not that you can't have a nice ordered home. It's not that you don't love your family. It's not that you don't love your kids. It's not that you don't put your kids in soccer and little league. It's not that you don't live a life like that of somewhat of normalcy. This is not a call to go out in the middle of the field somewhere and live like Amish people. That's not what it's saying. It's a matter of priority. What is the priority in all these things? The Christian life is not only a call to live for the world to come, but also to recognize that there is nothing here that will ultimately fulfill and ultimately satisfy. Look with me at Hebrews, just jumping ahead. Hebrews chapter 11, go to verse 23 for a practical, personal example of one person. You know this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. They had faith. Because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, here it is, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Where was his mind? Not on the temporal. It was on the eternal. He considered the reproach of Christ. Listen to, the, listen to those words. He considered the reproach of Christ. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for the reward. Let me tell you about treasures. The world that you and I live in who is, is, is mad with making you fall in love with earthly treasures. Just this week, 
AT&T and Time Warner come together for an $85 billion merger. Why? So that they can supply entertainment into your phones, your computers, your laptops, and your TV and keep you as one of their happy, happy, happy customers. And the Bible tells us, don't look at what's temporal. Don't set your heart on earthly treasures. Don't be too entertained with this world. It's passing away. It's, it's fleeting. It's, it's fading. Are you that caught up in your, you know, your, 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 uh, you know, your television program that you watch and your sitcom? Are you all caught up in it? We have to check ourselves. And I'm sorry, I, you may find that convicting, but you need to be convicted about that because don't trust your heart. Your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who knows it? Well, God knows it. We need to lay our hearts bare before the Lord and ask and reevaluate, constantly reevaluating. The Christian life is a life of constant self-examination because we can easily be lulled to sleep by sin and the world and the devil. Jesus taught His disciples to keep their eyes on the kingdom. To keep their eyes on what is above the eternal. Turn to, turn to John chapter 14. Just to see this. He does this in two ways. He promises them a place and He promises them His presence. And I like that because His presence speaks to what we experience even now by setting our minds above and not on this earth. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what Jesus said. Oh, listen. This was not written to you, but it was written for you. Listen. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. And I've done extensive study into that because I want to know what kind of place is Jesus talking about. I want to know what kind of place is Jesus talking about. And basically what scholars have summarized, Kostenberger and Carson and Leon Morris and others, what they've, what they've gathered from the language here is that what Jesus wanted to invoke in the mind of his disciples was those, the lattices and the, and the, and the columns and the, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, balconies of the lush palaces that they may have seen in Greece or Rome. And Jesus is saying, I have dwelling places for you. Basically, what Jesus could have said here is beyond your wildest imagination. Right? And He says, if it were not so, I would not have told you. He is not a liar. He's not a liar. I will come again to you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to Myself that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said what many of us would have said. Lord, we do not know the way. Basically saying, where are you going? Because we want to follow. But we don't know the way. What you're talking about. Where you're headed. How will we get there when you're caught? And Jesus says, I am the way. You can solve it all 
by placing all your hope, all your affections, all of your ambitions on Him who is the way, the truth, and the life, and you will go to the Father because of Him. Because of Him. And nothing, no nothing, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. What is the, um, what is the practical exercise of this looks like? What's it? Let's talk about attitude. Then what attitude do I have? Turn with me to Philippians chapter, chapter three. Philippians chapter three. The Bible has something to say about this. Surprise, surprise. Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse twelve. Coming right on the heels of resurrection hope, Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. None of us have. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. You see, this eschatological eternal hope, this eternal ambition, the Apostle Paul says, I hope in this way. Why? Because that's the reason Jesus laid hold of me. And the word that's used there literally means a violent seizure. And for some of us, plucked out of the world, it was a violent seizure. It was a day and night. It was a Damascus Road experience. It was a tectonic shift so that people don't even recognize you anymore. Huh? What are you doing? Praise the Lord? What? <laughs> but the important thing is not how He seizes you, but that He seizes you. That you are in His clutches. And he has laid hand, he has laid hold of you for this reason. So that you would lay hold of him. And what is the whole reason? It's an upward call. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. And some people say, but we can't live like Paul. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I'm sure not an apostle. But beloved, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He's not just writing to a couple guys that he thinks are qualified for this. He's writing to the church. And he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. One thing I do, I press on toward the goal. Did I mess it up? I did. Verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Oh boy, if your heart doesn't sink with gratitude right at that point to say, oh, the grace of God is such that I can forget what lies behind. Thank God I can forget what lies behind and press on another day. Reaching forward, the language of straining to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
And here, brother, here, sister, what he says, Let us therefore, as many as of a mature mind, or he says a, mat- a perfect, but really I think it's mature, he says, that's a better translation, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. I think that's so wonderful. You got a different position? Don't worry about it. The Lord will reveal that to you in time. (laughs) Paul is so right. So right. So right to take our eyes off of the temporal. So right to focus us on the eternal. So right to inject the language of athleticism in our walk with Christ. So right to remind us that Christ laid hold of us for this reason. And so right to convict us, to say only if you truly have a mature mind is this going to be your attitude. But this is the attitude that we need. Let us keep living by that standard. Father, Lord, I, I simply ask that little by little, every one of us would be willing not only to take stock, to examine, to do the introspective work that we need to do in order to evaluate, do we have this attitude? Do we have this mind? Or are we too distracted? Have we allowed the worry and the care and the concern of our lives, our trials, our problems? Have we allowed those things to choke out the promise of Your Word? If so, we repent and we say, Lord, remind us what the reason was that Christ laid hold of us for. Let us evaluate everything in our lives in light of eternity and graciously lead us and graciously correct us and graciously grow us into the image of of Your Son more and more every day. It's in His glorious name, in the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.